So if you've been uh, going and doing your grocery shopping here at the beginning of October, you will have noticed that uh, Halloween uh, decorations are in full force and there's costumes and uh, things in the stores as all of the kids and the big kids get ready uh, to dress up for Halloween. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you think about who you want to dress up as and then you play the part for a couple hours and uh, you collect yourself some uh, some goodies and then you put the costume away and and uh, and uh, it's it's all over we've been going through the book of James and James is really wisdom literature in the New Testament and what James is really getting after is this um, is your faith real or is it like a costume that you put on and you kind of look the part uh, for a couple hours when you're in the right context and then you kind of take that thing back off. Or is it genuine? Is there real transformative power? If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, then does it make a difference? And so we are going to continue this study this morning, working through uh, the book of James. James chapter 1, starting in verse 18. I'm going to read through to verse 27. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly receive the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and by so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, but immediately, uh, but does not do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is God's word. So this epistle from James, it's very, very practical, and he is asking the question, if you encounter saving grace, will it make a difference? And as we consider life uh, uh, in COVID, we've got to ask ourselves, are there real resources in our faith that enable us to handle the day by day, the week, week to week, month by month? Are there real resources that make a difference in our life? Or ultimately, are we sort of relating to everything the same way everybody else is? Are, are we still uh, sort of... Uh, plagued by the worry and the anxiety that everybody else is without any resources uh, for our worry and our anxiety. He, James is getting down to the difference that our faith in God actually makes, makes and the promise of grace. He puts it on the ground. So when we get to this section, this text that we just read, we find that as believers, we have a new relationship with the word of God. We are changed by the word of God. Uh, to be a Christian, to talk about the grace of Christ it's not Christian cosplay where we're just sort of dressing up, um, you know, uh, but we're truly serious about uh, our faith in God. And actually there's a power uh, that changes our lives in, that, in, in our faith in God. And so 
this is what he's 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 pointing at is there should be a difference uh, between the renewal that is available in true faith and the futility of just kind of going through religious motions. So the premise, of course, as I've said every week, is that James has seen the resurrected Jesus. James, like the apostles, is one of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who saw Jesus, but James and the apostles, they actually spent 40 days with the resurrected Jesus. They had the word of God interpreted for them by the resurrected Jesus. That's why the New Testament scriptures, uh, we consider the scripture because it is the, the Old Testament scriptures given through the interpretive lens. So James... This is his premise is, okay, if Jesus Christ is God and Lord, that's definitely going to have uh, implications. And there's, we are actually headed into a lifelong process of renewal as new humanity. Jesus Christ being humanity perfected and us as followers of Jesus Christ uh, slowly growing and becoming uh, new humanity. And so what he's getting at in this passage that we just read is that all those are saved by God's grace, uh, by the grace of God, have a relationship now with the word of God. And it does three things, um, which is how we're going to break apart this text this morning. And those three things are this. We are humbled by the word, we are shaped by the word, and we're liberated by the word. So let's take a moment now and look at, at these three things. First, how we're humbled by the word. If you look at verse 18, it says that God gave, God chose to give birth to us uh, through the word of truth. And we're like a kind of a first fruits. And first fruits, that was the first take of the harvest. Uh, you didn't eat it. You didn't sell it. Uh, you gave it as an offering to God, as a way of acknowledging that absolutely everything you had was from God. Now, that was how they gave offerings. And that actually shapes the way that we give today. Um, when we uh, receive our income, we we give first fruits to God. We we take a, part, a portion of that and say, we're going to support the work of the gospel through the church. We're going to preserve the preaching of Christ in the city. So there, that's how we give. We, we just separate it off and we give. And um, we don't say, well, if I happen to have anything left, I'll tip God $10 a year. It's, it, it's very intentional. And so God very intentionally gave generously and scandalously his grace to save us. So we are like these first fruits. And so what it is, is it's this, um, this beautiful picture that God in undeserved grace made sure that his gospel got to us, that he drew us, and that has a humbling effect on us. So we are humbled by this word of truth. James calls this word of truth in verse uh, 25, he calls the word of God perfect law. And why would he do that? James knows that there's different genres of the Bible. There's law, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But he also knows there's poetry, there's wisdom literature, and there's history. There's all of these different genres, but he calls all of it law. Why would he do that? Well, law has a formative effect. Law guides you. And so by calling all of God's word perf the perfect law, it's like saying everything in here is formative. Everything in here has the power to guide you. When you think about words, <clears throat> they have a formative force. When there's someone that you love, that you respect, that you appreciate, that you're really in awe of, you want their words badly. In fact, even in a human sense, we're like, I want your words to guide my life. When there's someone that you, who is incredibly successful in your field, you know, in, in a sense, we're like, tell me how to live my life. I can see how successful you are. Tell me how to do this. In human terms, we absolutely do this all the time. We buy their books. 
We listen to their podcasts. We follow them on social media. In a sense, we're like, teach me. And so the perfect law of God is really appealing to the depth of our love for God. Because if we love him, if we're in awe of him, if we're in worship to him, you know, James is getting at here is that there's going to be something that rises out of the heart of a believer that's like, tell me how to live my life. And so this perfect law humbles us. And right? if, if there is a God, then we got to ask ourselves the question, which is more reasonable? Is it reasonable that we stand over his word and we kind of peruse through it and we, and we say, I like this, I don't like that. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to incorporate this. I wish that they... God would update that. Is that reasonable? Or is it more reasonable that God's word stands over us and flips through our life and says, I like this. I don't like that. I appreciate this. I'd like you to repent of that. That actually makes more sense. If there is a God and there is, and Christ has risen from the grave, which he did, 33 AD on that Roman cross, if Jesus Christ submitted himself to the word and made use of the word, then that's going to be wise guidance for our, our life to make use of it too. So there's a humbling effect. It just, a humbling effect of God's word in our life. And this is where it begins. We've got to be humbled before we can be shaped. And so um, when we think about everything I'm saying right now, this is very, very offensive to the modern mind because the, the modern mind, it doesn't want to be told uh, that we could possibly be wrong. There isn't anything more offensive. You could say to somebody to say, you're wrong. Um, this is difficult. But, you know, just imagine this even in, in human terms. Um, the futility of of uh, kind of standing over God's wisdom and only accepting it on the basis of whether it's coherent with our wisdom. Think of it this way. Little Timmy's in his driveway. He's got his Leafs jersey on. He's got his hockey stick in his hand. He's taking wrist shots. And he's missing every shot. And the garage door's got dings and nicks all over it. And all of a sudden, this black SUV pulls up behind him and the window goes down and it's Austin Matthews. And Austin Matthews says... Hey, little Timmy, your wrist shot's all wrong. But you know, if you want, I'll move in with you. You know, I'll live in a spare bedroom in your house. I'll just wake up every day and you and I can go out in the driveway and just day by day, I'll, 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 I'll train you and teach you and mentor you and have a formative effect because your, your wrist shot, son, it's all wrong. And what is more reasonable for little Timmy to turn to Austin Matthews and say, you better check yourself. How dare you, sir? Tell me that what this feels very natural to me. Uh, I've always kind of done it this way. Uh, th th the way of taking this wrist shot suits my personality. How dare you? You better check yourself. You tell me there's one more thing wrong with my hockey game and the poster's coming off the wall in my bedroom. Is that reasonable or is it more reasonable that little Timmy says, teach me, Austin. Move in with me, Mr. Matthews. Tell me how to live my life. Which is more reasonable? Imagine this. The house league hockey coach is at the, is at the arena. And as he's telling the kids uh, how to set up their power play offense, he hears this voice from the bleachers behind him. Your strategy's all wrong. And he turns around and there's Wayne Gretzky. He got sick of the sunny weather in Phoenix and he comes back up to Canada. And he says, your strategy's all wrong. Which is more reasonable? That that house league coach humbles himself or that he says, I got news for you, sir. The game has changed, old timer. That might have been the way it was when you played. But last time I checked, it's 2020. So thanks, Wayne, but no thanks. Which is more reasonable? The point is when you are in the presence of greatness, 
the wisest thing to do is to close your mouth and open your heart and open your mind. And this is what James is getting at here is we've got to firstly, before we can be shaped by God's word, before we can be liberated by God's word, we've got to be humbled by God's word. And as we um, sit in that humble place, the word is able then to do uh, its work. So really, for those of you who've been joining us uh, on Sunday mornings and you're in a spiritual journey and you're considering Christian faith, here's what I would invite you to um, think deeply about this afternoon. The real question is not, how do I feel about this particular biblical teaching or that particular biblical teaching? The real question is, did Jesus Christ rise from the grave? Because if he did, then we have to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to all of God's word, the parts that you know, we don't understand or that confuse us and trust that in time, you know, God will reveal even those things to us. But there is a humility that must uh, come and that is most uh, reasonable. And so uh, in this, uh, we, we think that even Jesus himself, we've got about 1800 verses in the New Testament where Jesus is speaking and about 180 of them ish, Jesus is quoting the word of God. So if Jesus had submitted himself to God's word, um, it's wise that we do the same. And how do you do that? Well, you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you'll be saved. And from that place of being humbled, we can then be shaped, which leads us to the next thing, being shaped by the word of God. If you look at verse uh, 19, um, you'll see that it says, we're to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be angry, which is basically uh, you know, the opposite of uh, the comment section. <laughs> To, and and uh, so, you know, quick tip, if you want to have more peace and tranquility in your life, minimize the amount of time uh, that you're on social media where you're swirling around in the vortex of rage and anger and where you can uh, l- learn then to be uh, slow to speak and, and uh, quick to listen and slow to anger. But we get some good wisdom here. If you deconstruct that verse, excellent wisdom on how to be more slower in our anger. To be swift to hear is an others-centered posture. Uh, to be slow to speak is an others-centered posture. To be quick to anger is an indicator that we don't have a self, uh, an others-centered posture. We have a self-centered posture. And I am embarrassed to confess that I struggle with anger. I struggle with being quick to anger. And that's an indicator that in those moments in my life, as much as I don't want to admit it, I do not have an others-centered posture. And so there is, of course, a right way to be angry and a wrong way to be angry. Um, The difference between anger that is good and anger that is, uh, as this text would say, uh, incapable of the righteousness of God is the motivator. But for example, if you look at verse 20, it uses the term human anger. So human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. See, God's anger is always provoked by you know, the destructive forces of sin on the people that he loves. Well, human anger rises out of a defense of our own ego or to promote our agenda. And so godly anger motivates acts of love, whereas human anger never motivates acts of love. Um, Godly anger can motivate us to act with love and generosity, and that is the righteousness that he desires, whereas human anger never produces acts of love and never produces the righteousness that he desires. And so when you get to verse 21, it uses this really aggressive language telling us, here's how you're going to be shaped. You've got to get rid of the filth. You've got to get rid of the sin. You want to repent of it. You want to, of course, be able to see it and humble yourself. The text says, 
get rid of the moral, uh, moral filth and evil that's so prevalent, humbly receive the word that's planted in you. That's what can save you. In the 1600s, there's an Anglican theologian named John Trapp, and he used really colorful language to describe this. He said, <coughs> he said, sin is the devil's vomit. It's the soul's excrement. It's the superfluous garbage of naughtiness. Such aggressive language. Now, at first glance, it seems like, well, this is a lot of grueling work. Christianity is a lot of grueling work. I'm supposed to, you know, rid myself of all this fifth filth. But if you look at the progression, right, you, first you, you receive the word. It's, you're in a posture of receiving grace. You are humbled by the grace. And then after this mode of receiving, you are shaped. See, the word received, it's, the text says there in verse 21, humbly receive the word that's planted in you. That's very instructive, right? Because if you're receiving, that means you're not saved by your working. You're saved by receiving. You're not saved by what you give to God. You're saved by what God gives to you. And so we can then repent and turn from the ideologies and the actions of our culture that contradict the word of God. And so it's not a grueling duty. It's actually this verse 21 about getting rid of the moral filth. It's not a grueling duty to do it. It's actually provoked by delight that we do it. Uh, for example, g- give you a picture of this. Um, my son, Isaiah, he's at, he's at Sheridan for animation. It's a lot of work. When he was in high school, um, I would, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a night owl, so I go to bed really late. I'd go by his bedroom door, 12 o'clock, 1, 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning. I'd go by, I'd see his light on, I'd peek my head in, and there he is. He's drawing away, he's drawing away, he's drawing, he's drawing. He's working. He's working at it. And I would say to him, Isaiah, you got to go to bed. And he would be like, Dad, I, I got to do this. I got to get this idea out of my head. I got to draw this thing. You see, he was working, working, working. But what was driving it, well, it wasn't grueling duty. It was delight. This is the picture of, of the work of grace in our life so that we can be shaped by God's word. Verse 22 goes on to say, don't merely listen to God's word. Because if you just listen to it, you're deceiving yourself. Do something with it. And, uh, you know, today, a lot of when we think about um, education, in certain, as- certain sectors of education, there's an, there's an uh, internship component. You're, there's an apprenticeship that's tied to it. You know, you, you've, you can't just learn this thing. You've got to go and put it into practice. There are other aspects of education courses that are totally theoretical, there is, no, there is no apprenticeship. You just sit, you listen to a lecture, you read a book, you write it down, you write a test, it's over. You don't, not, you know, you don't ring your teacher's doorbell and uh, be like, hey, I just thought I'd spend some time with you at your house and see how you interact with your family. Uh, just watch how you handle stressful situations because you're such a formative teacher in my life. I just thought I'd sort of follow you around and so you could mentor me. They'd be like, that's really creepy. Get out of my house. Just take my lectures and that's as far as this education goes. Well, the biblical understanding of discipleship is not that you just listen to the sermon and say, that was good or that wasn't good or I really enjoyed that today. I didn't enjoy it today. The end. But that there's something happens after the listening. There's deep introspection and there's something's uh, supposed to go on very, very deeply. Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount in the same way. He said, those who hear my words and do them it's like someone building their house on a rock. If you hear my words and you don't do anything with them, that's like building your house on the sand. Jesus made, made use of this exact same uh, wisdom. There's a Scottish translator, his name is James Moffat, and he says this, 
When the sermon is done, it is not done. Something remains to be done by the hearers in life. And if they content themselves with sentimental admiration or with enjoying the emotional or the mental treat, then they need not imagine that that is Christianity. This, this hearing has to go somewhere. And uh, again, it's the delight that's driving the desire to do. In verse 26, it says that Christians who don't have a, a tight rein on their tongues, they're deceived and the faith is worthless. And why would James talk about how it's so worthless? It's because it's a worthless witness. We can't be effective ministers in Kitchener or Waterloo claiming that we worship this God of endless love when people's experience of us is that we are effortlessly unloving. And so James is sort of channeling the prophets and he's summarizing the prophets. When you get to verse 27, he, he, he kind of brings it together in verse 27. He says, here's how you know you're not going through the motions. Here's how you know you're not just saying, grace, grace, I'm amazed by grace, but it's, it's just Christian cosplay. Here's how he says you know two ways, the way you relate to the poor and the way you relate to pollution. He says, if you, if you care about the poor and if you're actively engaged in, moved at, in your heart by the poor, that's a sign that your faith is real. Why would he say that? It's not because you know, being uh, charitable to the poor is what saves you. you know, your works don't save you. That's not what he's saying at all. It's because in the gospel, we see that we are the poor. The poor are a mirror of ourselves. It's inescapable. It's all through scripture. It's from Genesis to Revelation. That God, in scandalous grace, 2 Corinthians 8 teaches us this, that Jesus, who, though he was rich, became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And so the very basis and core of Christianity is we understand we've received something we don't deserve. And so when we see the poor, the outcast, the refugee, there's something in the Christian that says, I'm not going to just stand by and give lip service to this. I've got to actively get involved and I've got to care for them in a meaningful way. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, of course, is the pollution, whereby we don't sort of stand over the word of God and say, you know, the culture hand me my ethics and what I believe about, uh, you know, how to handle my finances or how I should relate to justice and issues of justice and mercy, or uh, I'm just going to let my political party give me all of my views or let the culture baptize me in their ideas around sexuality. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, Whichever parts of the word of God fit the culture, then I'll just accept that. But whichever parts of the word of God seem to contradict culture, I'm going to go with the culture. That's called pollution. And so what he gets at, he says, you know that your faith is real. You can summarize in these two ways and how you relate to the poor and how you relate to pollution. And um, the significance of this, of course, is that it means that it's not Christian cosplay, that when we say things like being missional in our city or being a gospel-centered church or Christ-centered preaching, that they're not buzzwords we put on the website. What is James doing by using such strong language uh, with you and I? Well, what he's doing is he's, he's not trying to beat the church down. He's trying to fire the church up, right? When Teoscar Hernandez hits a home run, may the Blue Jays rest in peace, and he looks at the dugout and he goes, let's go, right? When, when Austin Matthews scores a goal and he looks at the bench and he goes, let's go. When the soccer team from Toronto, and I, I got to, you know, should have done my homework on this. When one, of the, when, when, when one of their players 
some of you should unmute themselves and help me out, give me a name. When they score a goal and they look at their team and they say, let's go. What are they doing? Because that's what, ja- that's what the entire book of James is. The entire book of James is James looking at the church and going, let's go. Here's what they're not doing. Come on, guys. I'm, I'm the only one who's scoring. I'm the only one who's doing. The, he, they're, not, they're not beating their team down. They're not trying to highlight their failure, right? Hey, Vladdy, you, you struck out the last two times. I just hit a home run. Let's go. That's not what they're doing. When James is getting the church to say, let's not be hearers, let's be doers, he's going, let's go. He's trying to stir the church up to the love and the good works. Not because you're saved by those things, but because those are the evidence that we are saved by the saving grace of Christ. And that's how we are missional and effective in loving and caring for our city. Which leads to the last thing, which is to be liberated by the word, humbled by it, shaped by it, and liberated by it. The the response of the heart that's, that's truly gripped by grace, when we hear these kinds of calls, you know, to mission and calls to purity, uh, the response of, of the heart electrified by grace when it hears the word of God calls these things is, this is what I want. This is what I want. How are we liberated? In verse 23 to 25, we're given two ways you can look at God's word. You can, be, you can look at it like a person who looks in the mirror and you're just unmoved and you totally forget it. Uh, or you can be deeply moved and liberated by it. Verses 23 through, through 25, you're given those... Um, those contrasting pictures. And when James uses this phrase, he says, look intently into the word of God. That phrase, look intently, um, in the Greek, uh, the perex apresas is the same phrase that was used when Peter looked into the tomb, the empty tomb. He looked intently. Now, I don't know about your house, but in our house, sometimes Susan says, can you go look for this thing in the fridge or look for this thing downstairs or look for this thing in the garage? And I'll go, or maybe one of the boys will go, and we'll come back and we'll say, I don't see it. And then she'll go out, she'll go, it's right here. It's because we didn't look intently. It's because, yeah, our bodies went, and like our physical eyeballs were like pointed in the right direction, but our hearts and our minds were on something else. And we just skipped right past it. When Peter went into the empty tomb, Three days after Christ's crucifixion, when Peter went into the empty tomb, the text says he looked intently. James says, when we look into God's word, we're to look intently. That means Peter was in there like, what does this mean? What are the implications of this? Yeah, it wasn't a big tomb. It wasn't like Peter was like, oh, maybe he's under this rock over here. He looked intently, he walked in, saw it was empty, and he looked intently. There was this deep searching And so what you and I are being called to do right here is a deep searching. How are you liberated by God's word? You look at it and you say, what does this mean for me? What are the implications of this for my life? If Jesus Christ is truly Lord, what what could this possibly mean? It says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, they don't just hear it, but they do it, they'll be blessed in all that they do. So how can law bring freedom? How can any of this be liberating? Well, I've got a little helper here. If you look here, you'll see. Can you see him? That's Gumball. It's Nigel's, Nigel's little pet. He's had a hard life, Gumball. One week we went away for holidays and Rebecca said she'd feed him and then she didn't. And then we came back and then Nigel multiplied how many pellets he should have by how many days we were gone and then dumped them all in. <laughs> one time, he's still alive. Tough little guy. 
he gumball is restricted to that water. The modern construct of freedom is to the degree that there are restrictions on my life, I am not free. And so therefore, I should be liberated to be able to do what I want, when I want, however I want. Um, and, and I live my own personal truth and you live your own personal truth. And that's our idea of freedom. The problem is if I scoop gumball out of here and I put him on my lap for the remainder of this sermon, you know, which is about two minutes, um, he's going to shrivel. And if we exalt ourselves above the wisdom of God's word and its right guidance in our life, our souls will shrivel. So here's how the law liberates, because it's not our modern understanding of law. Liberation does not come from the removal of restriction and guidelines. We flourish within divine restriction and divine guidelines in the same way that the fish thrives in the restriction, the right restriction of the water. Our souls thrive in the right restriction of the water of God's word. And so the liberating news here is that Jesus Christ kept this law for you. His spirit indwells you. And now God's liberating word can guide you. You are not saved by your progress. You are saved by trusting in Christ's perfection. And so you and I now, we think deeply. When we read the scriptures, we're not just looking for ourselves. How do I keep the law? We're looking for the one who kept the law for us. In the same way that I preach week in and week out, what does the text mean? But how has Christ fulfilled it? And let me worship to the glory of Christ. That's how we must approach God's word. That's how it will liberate you by seeing the one who died for you, by seeing the one who loves you, by considering the one who walks with you, who indwells you, so that his word can guide you. Look intently and let the word of God read you. Let it convict you. Let it challenge you, speak to you, and teach you. And then look to see the one who fulfilled it all perfectly for you. And let his life of love be a faithful guide for you, for you and for your children. And when you learn to look at the word of God fully expecting to do something with what you find, you will increasingly resemble the one who saved you in grace by the same power of his grace. Let's pray.